chapter 2, Mark chapter 2. It has been um, about six weeks since we have last been in Mark's gospel. Hopefully it has been a nice refreshing break from the gospel of Mark. And so, uh, but over the next few weeks, we're going to continue along and really over the next Really, this whole year, uh, we'll be uh, considering the Gospel of Mark with a few breaks throughout our time together. And uh, one of the reasons why I chose the Gospel of Mark to consider in our time together is because in the Gospel of Mark, we have really two ideas presented to us. First, we have the question of, who is Jesus? Who is this Jesus of Nazareth that we gather to worship? We remember the Gospel of Mark is actually written to Christians. It's not really a letter or a, a gospel or biography written to people who don't know who Jesus is, but it's a helpful reminder to remind our own lives, our own hearts, who is Jesus and how does it affect our lives? And then secondly, uh, Mark presents us not only with who Jesus is, but who are his followers? Who, who, what does it look like to follow this Jesus of Nazareth? So as we consider who Jesus is, that Jesus is the divine son of God, the one who has eternally existed, the second person of the Trinity, who's come and been united to human flesh, the eternal God became man and dwelt among us. As we consider this person, and we consider then what it looks like to follow him, well, we get then a pretty good idea of what the Gospel of Mark is really all about. In preparation for this, I was thinking about uh, some of my favorite games. And one of the things I love to play in games is I love visual games like pick, like you know, not like video games, but like, you know, you know, when they used to play games like word searches, you know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like word searches. People, I, I used to, uh, my grandmother used to get me word searches all the time. She'd get me like those real big ones and I would like mow through them really quickly. And, and, and what I find is, is oftentimes when people play word search games, you know, that, you know, where you have to find the words and you have the word bank and you're looking for the words. Oftentimes when people play that and I watch them play that, they're playing it all wrong. You know, what they do is they go and they scan through and they look, they're sort of looking for maybe the first letter of the word or things like that, and they, they play it all along. Well, the way to play the game and really do really well at the game is to be able to, if you will, see the words rise above the other letters. What makes that game really the game is, is to be able to visually see the, the words from the word bank, because uh, if you're really good, you don't need a word bank. Uh, and, and so when you look at it and the words begin to rise above the rest and all the other letters begin to fall away and you see just the words. That's that's all you really see. So it's a visual game. It's a, it's sort of a, a visual thing. And, and what you see is you see that something is wrong. Something is there that shouldn't be there. That is, all those other letters that are in the row and all those little letters that sort of kind of hang out around all the words, those aren't supposed to be there. Those aren't supposed to be there. And so your, your eyes see that they're not supposed to be there, so they sort of fall away. Well, that's, that's kind of what's happening in Jesus in the text that we're going to consider this morning. Jesus' followers are sort of looking at his life and saying, you know what, there's some things going on in your life that really don't match. They're like those words. There's, there's, there's things in your life that you're doing things the wrong way. Just like you play, you're playing that game the wrong way. Well, Jesus, you're playing the game of religion the wrong way. 
As Jesus looked at Je- as people looked at Jesus' life, they noticed that something was wrong. Something was different. Something wasn't quite right. Look with me to Mark chapter 2 this morning in verse 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to Jesus, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So we think about Jesus' words this morning. I think to summarize this passage is to say that Jesus' ministry, Jesus' religion, if you will, is different from others. Jesus' behavior was new. It was new. It wasn't like the old. It was new. There was something different about Jesus in his ministry. To summarize, when Jesus came, God began a new day in redemptive history. God's plan of redemption was new. It was different. Jesus was bringing to the Israelites something new. Something new. As we consider just sort of how the narrative has been moving in Mark's gospel, we really began the gospel by considering Jesus' identity, and now we're beginning to get into the the meat, if you will, of Jesus' ministry. We're beginning to see, you know, you, you learn a lot about a person by the way they act. By the things that they say. Mark's gospel begins by people talking about Jesus. And now we really see here beginning some of Jesus' first words. And last time we considered Mark, so all the way back in November 2015. I know it's been a while. um, We consider Jesus' call of Levi. And we remember that Levi was a sinner. Levi was an outcast. Levi wasn't one who would have been rubbing shoulders with the upper elite of the society there in Jerusalem. Uh, uh, Levi and his friends were despised. Just as the tax collectors of the IRS today are despised, so also were the tax collectors of that day. And Levi was one who was not welcomed and neither were his friends. And where do we find Jesus? Not hanging out with the upper elites of, uh, of Jewish society, but rather hanging out with those that no one else wanted to hang out with. Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. Jesus was radical in the way he did ministry. 
Jesus wasn't like the Pharisees. And, and at the beginning of chapter 2, and then as we move through into chapter 3, we begin to see some confrontation that Jesus is having with the established religion of his day. Jesus is going against the establishment. That's really what we see going on here. Jesus is pushing slowly but surely against traditionalism, against religion. And Jesus is, for our all sense and purposes, redefining what it means to follow God. What it means to follow God. That's what Jesus is doing for these Jewish people. Because what had happened is, over the centuries and over the decades, God's people had slowly but surely moved away from his law and moved into practical religion. And friends, if you were to consider American uh, history, uh, the life of conservatives within that history, the life of Southern Baptists within that history, friends, that is our story as well. We have moved away from God's word and into practical and pragmatic religion. We have done things because we've always done things that way. Friends, you could go to any church that's a Bible-believing conservative church, and most of those churches are dying because they're doing it the same way they've always done it, without ever thinking about the implications of that, without thinking about their practices are actually really tied to a moment in time rather than the eternal word of God. We want our practices to be grounded in God's word, not a moment in American history, not the 1950s or the 1960s. I get frustrated often when I hear well-meaning people say that I just wish we could get back to the way things used to be in America. I wish we could get back to the way things used to be. Well, friends, when you say that, you know, you have to consider something. Things always weren't great for certain people in America. Fifty years ago, uh, you know, things weren't great. This week I had the privilege of going on a, a little sight and see tour of the city of Baltimore, which I know many of you flee from. Uh, and, you know, David, like, we avoid that. We just sort of, that's why we built that beltway so we could get around it. We don't have to go through it. Right? Uh, I know. I know. So uh, when you think, you know, so I got a little sight and, 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 really a sight and sound tour of the city. And, and as I considered the divide there on Utah Street, and as you consider the divide that, that happened there and what was going on, one of the, the individuals I was with told me that one of the rules was that back, in the, back you know, 50, just 50 years ago that a, a, a black man could not own a home on Utah Street. That, that there, was, uh, there was written unwritten rules and you would lose your license as a, 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 you know, to sell property if you were to sell a piece of land. That just broke my heart. Say, fifty years ago, just fifty years ago. And and as you think about that, and we think about, you know, oh, we're just nostalgic about the past and thinking the past is great and glorious, and if we could just get to the past, then then things would be good. But friends, when you consider what Jesus is saying here, he is saying the radical opposite. Jesus isn't concerned with getting the Jews back to the old days. He is talking about a new day. A new day in the life of God's people. And that's what I want us to consider this morning. As we think about what Jesus is saying, what is he talking about, and why is it such a big deal? 
first, I want you to notice the little uh, information here in verse 18 that Mark gives us. He says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? He just says it. John's disciples and the Pharisees are fasting. If you consider for a moment here as we, you know, think about these two groups. Mark has put together two groups that were polar opposites. John's disciples and the Pharisees, right? John's disciples were faithful people, were faithful Jews. They were men who were following the John the Baptist. They were men who had come along, <coughs> excuse me, and were following uh, John the Baptist. And we we were introduced to John the Baptist at the beginning of the Gospel of Mark. He was someone who was called by God to prepare the way for the Son of God, for the Messiah. He was the one who was to kind of get people primed, get get the pump primed, get it ready to start the engine for the Messiah to come. And so he was getting people's hearts turned back towards God through his preaching ministry. And so John's out in the wilderness preaching the gospel, telling them that the kingdom is coming, that the, that the Messiah is coming. Get your, get your life in order. Get ready. Here he comes. And he had followers that were sort of spread out throughout the countryside that were going into people's homes and were telling them and preparing them for the Messiah. Okay? And so John was a faithful follower of God. And then you have on the other side, you have the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were, were a really conservative Followers of Christ, excuse me, of God, not of Christ, of God. Pharisees were, if you will, the conservative party within the life of Judaism. They were the ones that held hard and fast to God's word. They were the ones who wouldn't mess around with God's word. They were very serious about God's word. But here's the thing that the Pharisees got themselves in trouble with. They would take a law and then they would build, if you will, a fence around it. They would, they would build a, a hedge around it. They would, they would build some sort of barrier around it so that they didn't approach it and, and maybe accidentally break it. So when it came to the Sabbath, for example, what we'll consider next week, these Pharisees would build, you know, all these rules around the Sabbath so that they wouldn't accidentally, unintentionally break it. Like, like for example, you could only walk so many steps on the Sabbath day or you'd break it. Right. I mean, it just became legalism. It became, you know, if you do this, then God will accept you. Then then you can have a relationship with God. And so they turn the law into religion. They turn God's word and a relationship with God into a list of do's and don'ts. Well, friends, God's word was never intended to sort of be laid out in a linear way to say, if you do this and you don't do that, then God will love you. That's never how God ever dealt with any of his people. The law came after the Exodus. The law came after salvation, not before salvation. So when we consider Israelites in the Old Testament, they weren't saved by works. They were saved by faith and the promises of God that God would one day send a deliverer. And so when we consider the Pharisees and John's disciples, these were men who, for all intents and purposes, were trying to faithfully follow God's word the way they thought it should be followed. And a part of following God's word was fasting was this aspect of fasting. Now, what is fasting? As we thought to think about fasting. Fasting in the Old Testament, so I want to I sort of maybe clarify Christian fasting 
from fasting in the Old Testament. So God's word commanded in the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, in Leviticus chapter 16. We won't have to go there, but if you want to you know, have some reading this afternoon, you can go to Leviticus 16, and you can see all the rules that were associated with that. And one of the rules of, of the Day of Atonement, which was sort of the pinnacle day in the life of God's people, that was, that was the day that everyone looked for. Why? That was the day that their sins were atoned for. That was the day that their sins were covered over by the sacrifice of the bull. And so when the, when the sacrifice happened that day, there was some festivities and some activities that were to, to happen. And one of those was fasting. They were, to, they were to mourn for their sin. They were to be broken. They were to consecrate themselves in such a way that they were to separate from their lives all work, including the activity of eating. And so they would set aside that day, and it was a day, 24-hour period, where they would fast. They would eat nothing. They would have water and, and a small amount of bread just, for, just to sustain themselves. But that was it. But then throughout the Old Testament narrative, we see other types of fast. So the one, if you will, that was commanded in, by God in the Scriptures was that fast on the Day of Atonement. But then what we began to see in practice is that they would begin to fast in ways uh, for, uh, for other occasions. For, for example, when the, a king was killed, there would be fasting. The, the nation would mourn. They would, they would weep. They would, they would fast. And, and this just seems really practical, right? So if you've ever lost someone in your life, uh, if you've ever been around those that are grieving, uh, often you're, you lose your appetite in those moments, in that moment of grieving and sorrow when you, you've sort of been grief-stricken. You know, it's, it's hard to sort of eat. You're just, you're, you're broken. And, and then we see that as a practical example in Scripture that when God's people were broken because of tragedy, they fasted. Well, there was other moments in, 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 God's, in the life of God's people where they fasted, where they would give themselves to that. But what happened really after the New Testament period closed, for a couple hundred years, there was a group of rabbis that got together and began to create some rules about what it looked like to follow God. And that's what the Pharisees are following. They're following these set of rabbinical traditions that talked about fasting. And so the Pharisees would fast twice a week. They would fast on Mondays and Thursdays. And the reason for their fasting was for piety. Well, friends, when you do anything regular like that, Mondays and Thursdays, what happens? It just becomes just, you just have it. You just do it without really thinking why you're doing it. And that's really what happened. It, it became a test for faithfulness. It became something that said, if you do this, then you must be spiritual. And that's really what you have going on here. And so the crowds begin to sort of observe Jesus's ministry, Jesus's life, and they begin to conclude, Jesus, are you really serious about ministry? Are you really serious about having followers? Are you really serious about this? Because if you are, well, then you really kind of need to clean up your act a little bit. You need to get your disciples fasting too. Because everyone knows in Jewish society that if you are to be perceived as spiritual, then you must fast on Mondays and Thursdays. That's just the way it is. And to not do that is to seem silly and ridiculous and really no one's going to consider you Jesus if you don't start doing that. This is the same line that Jesus' brothers gave him in John 7. 
In John 7, we see this picture of Jesus going up into uh, the festival time, at the Feast of Booths, and, and his brother said, hey, Jesus, we're just going to try to help you out here a little bit. If you want to become popular, you got to go where the people are. You can't stay at home and think that you're going to get followers after you. And that's really the same reasoning that we see here in the crowds. They come to Jesus and say, hey, why is it that we see everyone else, all the religious people, all the spiritual people are involved in this activity, but yet you aren't and your followers aren't either? Why aren't you fasting? So that's the question we see Jesus is asked. And Jesus, in, in sort of uh, normal fashion, uh, anytime Jesus is confronted, he asks a question with a question. Most of the time, when you see Jesus confronted by his fault, by, by you know, antagonists, you'll see him responding with a question. Notice the question that Jesus asks. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. What is Jesus, what are you talking about here? What is this? Bridegroom fasting. Jesus uses here, he tells a parable. He tells really a a story that everyone would be familiar with. He says, okay, let's consider a wedding. Let's think about a wedding for a moment, he says. Let's think about a wedding and all that goes on in a wedding. Is a wedding a time of mourning? Is a wedding a time of, of fasting, he says? No, a wedding is a time of, of feasting. A wedding is a time of celebration and joy and, and excitement. A wedding isn't a time for mourning, but a time of rejoicing. And so Jesus says, can the wedding guests, can those that are attending that wedding fast while this excitement is all going on around them? Surely not. He said, it would be ridiculous to consider someone fasting while celebration is going on. Have you ever been to a party, you know, and you got the, the party pooper, you know, the guy that's just sitting in the corner, he's not doing anything, he's just, he's just dead, has no joy. It's like, yeah, there's this celebration going around around you, there's excitement, and here you are, sort of off alone and, and by yourself and mourning and sad. Jesus says, no, when you're around the groom, when you're around the bridegroom, there is celebration, there is excitement. Why? Is it because you're excited? It's because he's excited. Jesus is saying that those that are around the bridegroom are excited because the bridegroom is excited. Because the bridegroom is filled with joy and excitement because of the the great festivities that are about to happen this day and really in their context would have been a whole week, you know, and all the hustle and bustle in town because of that. Well, all those in attendance are excited because the bridegroom is excited. And I hope you see this morning that that bridegroom is Jesus Christ. Jesus says that my disciples, the wedding guests, are happy and joyful because I'm in their life. Because of my presence. The presence of the Son of God evokes excitement and rejoicing and joy. Just like at a wedding the guests are excited with all the pomp and all, this, all the glory that comes along with a wonderful wedding. So also, my disciples, they're not mourning because God is present 
with them. God is in their life. And because God is in their life, it is ridiculous to think that they would be fasting. What Jesus is trying to get the people to see is who he is. He's trying to help them understand in a sort of veiled way who he is. When you draw near to God, there is a sense of rejoicing and joy in your life. When God's presence is made evident in your life, there's excitement. There's joy, not mourning. But notice, doesn't mean there's always rejoicing and joy. Verse 20, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. I think this here is a, a veiled sort of picture of what will happen to Jesus in a matter of years. Jesus beginning his ministry early on here. Uh, it's a veiled statement here. Of Notice that the bridegroom is taken away. That's not a way that we normally would, would describe a groom, you know. Maybe perhaps taken away. You know, it's not something you would, he would snatch away in the, in the night. No, we wouldn't use that language when speaking about a groom marrying uh, his bride, that he was snatched away, taken away, but that he left on his own accord, right? That he, he went on, on his own. They, he went together with her, right? But here he says that he was taken away from them. He was ripped away from them. A, a picture here, a veiled picture, I think, of what will happen to Jesus and his disciples. One day Jesus will be ripped away from them. One day Jesus will be pulled away from them. One day their joy will turn into mourning. Remember what Jesus' disciples faced that night that Jesus was betrayed. It's really not surprising behavior on their behalf. You know, we like to point our fingers at Peter. We like to say, Peter, I wouldn't have done that. I would have stood with you. No, you would not have. You would have ran just like Mark ran naked in the night. You would have ran just like they ran because it was unexpected. They didn't expect their king to be slaughtered. They didn't expect their king to be arrested that night. They, didn't, they expected triumph. They expected joy. And, and they expected a king that was going to sweep them away. Jesus here reminds them that the king will be taken from them. The bridegroom will be snatched away. And why? Why would he be snatched away? Because of their sin. You see, it's because of their sin that they would be sorrowful. So that their sorrow would then be turned into joy. Jesus was taken away from them so that He could die in their place. Jesus was taken away from us so that He might die in our place as a substitute for us. He, he paid the penalty for our sin, not His own sin. He was, he was perfect and He was holy. But yet He died in our place. So that all those who would put their faith in Him might be saved. Because you see, when Jesus was taken away and, 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 and crucified, Jesus was bearing the wrath of God for your sin. And so, just like on the Day of Atonement, that goat would go, bull would go and be slaughtered and expiated. The wrath of God would be, would be satisfied. On the cross, God's wrath was satisfied in His own Son. He was taken away and they will fast. 
I don't think this passage is speaking about Christian fasting. Uh, This passage is actually used, if you've ever wondered, uh, if you've come from a Roman Catholic background, if you've ever wondered why on Good Friday there is fasting, if you've ever wondered why some of that, this is where it's coming from. I, I don't believe this passage is speaking literally about Christian fasting. I think if we want to consider Christian fasting, we want to go to Matthew chapter 6 and Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives some instruction on fasting, right? But, but Christian fasting is not mourning, isn't sorrow. But it's rather a time of consecration, a time to set aside our lives for the intense purpose of prayer and drawing close to God. That's not what Jesus is speaking about here. He goes on to give two more illustrations. First in verse 21, and then in verse 22. Both of them sort of begin with the same phrase, no one, verse 22, no and no one, emphasizing the ridiculousness of their question, emphasizing the ridiculousness of religion. Friends, I want to remind you the reason why they were so concerned was because of traditionalism, because of religion. They thought that because they had always done it that way, that was the way to do it. Because if you want to have a relationship with God, you've got to get busy and do something. That's what religion says. Religion says, do this and be accepted by God. Christianity says, Jesus did that on your behalf. You ain't got to do nothing. Nothing. You put your trust in Him. He did everything for you. He lived a perfect life on your behalf, and He died on your behalf. Now, oftentimes we focus on the the dying on our behalf and forget He lived a perfect and righteous life for us. And so no one, he says, sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old garment. Now the illustration is somewhat clear. If you've ever, um, he says, no one does that. He says, who would do that? You know, sort of invokes a question. Who, who would really do that? He's foolish to do that. Uh, well, clearly, if he would do that, then that patch would rip away, would tear away from it. Worse, tear is made. When you try to take something old and put it, or take something new and put it on something old, no, they don't don't go together. They're like oil and water. It just doesn't go together. It has a a devastating effect. You're sort of thinking about this in our own day and age, you know. If you ever tried to sew anything on a little sewing machine, you know that one of the things, you know, rule number one, you gotta, you gotta wash the fabric. You gotta, gotta get it prepared. Why? Because of the same effect. If you don't, it'll tear apart. The stitching will all come apart. It'll be a mess, right? And and it's clear. (coughs) That's what's happening here. You can't take something new, something that hasn't been shrunken, and plug it in to something that's old. You just can't do that. You've got, uh, they just don't go together. And then he goes on and says, hey, and the same thing goes. No one puts new wine into old wineskins, right? So they would use these wineskins to ferment wine. So he took unfermented wine, put it in a wineskin, and it would ferment. Well, anything that ferments, right, uh, it's going to expand. There's going to be some expansion process, right? So if you take a a piece of of leather or some other animal skin that's dried, that's cracked, that's that's worn, 
doesn't stretch. It's lost its elasticity. It's lost its ability to stretch and pull and be able to hold the pressure that would build under that fermentation process. Well, what we see Jesus saying is like, hey, no one does that, right? That the emphasis here is on the ridiculousness of the activity that he's describing. Who does that? Right? Who really does that? You ever been in a situation where, where you've really felt like awkward? You ever been in a situation where other people that maybe you don't even know make you feel awkward? I know oftentimes like when you go shopping, you know, maybe someone's acting like a, a, a lunatic towards their kid, like beating their kid to death. And I'm like, that's just like, it makes you feel awkward. You feel like, one, you feel bad for the kid and you just feel weird. It feels like, I don't even know you and I feel weird. Or like, you'll be in the checkout line. This happens to me often. I am sort of introvert in the sense, like, I don't often talk to people. So like when people talk to me or say things to me, like that are just weird, like, why would you tell me that? Why would you say that? Um, you feel awkward. If you're on Facebook, I mean, people say things on that thing that they don't need to be saying in public. Why would you say that publicly, right? You feel awkward. You feel weird. What's kind of what Jesus is trying to do here? He's evoking awkwardness in the sense that those that are fasting should feel awkward. They should feel foolish and ridiculous. He is highlighting the ridiculousness of religion. He's highlighting the foolishness of traditionalism. He's highlighting how silly it is when we think all we have to do is some things and God will be pleased with us. Jesus is slowly and subtly through these chapters undermining our conception of religion. Thinking that what religion really boils down to is behavioralism. That's what it is. And friends... I want to give you some illustration of that. We get wrapped up in what people wear as a sign of their piety and spiritualism. Therefore, you know, there wasn't probably maybe in the life of this own congregation, maybe a few years ago, where if you weren't wearing a suit and a dress, then you were something wasn't right in your life. Right? And we often assume because of outward things, right, that someone's heart is right. That because of their praying or reading or they're carrying a Bible or so on and so forth, that somehow they must be religious. Somehow they must have it all together. What Jesus is doing here is exposing those lies. Exposing that who we hang out with doesn't define who we are in, the, in hanging out with sinners. Jesus' compassion for sinners was greater than their, their effect on his life. Friends, if you think that if you... you Chilling with, with uh, sinners, with non-Christians, is going to somehow pollute you. You have a small view of God. A small view of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in your life who has promised to keep you and sustain you even against the darkness around you. If you think this morning that your behavior is what defines your relationship with God, I can guarantee that you're probably very sad today. Because if you're like me, you screwed up this week. If you're like me, you failed this week. If you're like me, you sinned this week in some probably terrible ways. Ways that maybe you wouldn't even say publicly. Friends, I want to remind you this morning that the foundation of Christianity is Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. The foundation of new Life 
is Jesus. This is why he says, but new wine is for fresh wineskin. You want to be fresh this morning? You've got to be with the new wine. If you want to be refreshed and restored, it's only going to happen through Jesus. It's not, going to be ha- it's not going to happen by doing old religious activity. There's nothing wrong with Bible reading and prayer and living a godly life. There, there, that pray, there's nothing wrong with that. that. But friends, that flows from a transformed life. When Jesus was confronted by Nicodemus, a Pharisee, Nicodemus struggled with this conception. This same idea Nicodemus was struggling with. He was wrestling with it. He wanted to understand how can something old, new, I don't understand. I'm just stuck in my ways and I can't change. Maybe you've said that. Nicodemus is wrestling with this idea. And Jesus says to him, Unless you be born again, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Unless you are made new, you cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're like Nicodemus, trying to put something new into something old. You're like that wine going into old wineskins. Jesus has brought to us a new way to God. Jesus has brought to us a way to have a relationship with God that does not depend upon your personal performance, but rests solely upon His. That is the promise that He gives to us in this passage. Let's pray. Holy Father, We praise you for sending us this new way. That through Christ, we can have access to you, not based on ourselves. Father, we are reminded that we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are just confronted with our own foolish thinking. And Father, I pray this morning that you would expose that in our hearts. Where Lord, where we become despaired, Sorrowful, thinking that because we did X, you will never love us. That because we've done X, or said X, or thought X, or did this, or did that, that you've drawn away from us. You've left us. Father, expose that foolishness in us. And show us the way home. Show us the way to you. Show us, show us that through Christ you accept us because of his obedience, because of his work on the cross. We, we now can have you in our lives and enjoy you and rejoice just as if Jesus was here today. Just like those disciples were rejoicing. Because the bridegroom is with them. We too can be with the bridegroom. Father, I pray also you would expose the pride in our hearts to think and stretch our necks high because of our performance. Because we are not caught in X. Because we didn't do X this week. Oh, because we kept ourselves unstained by the world, we somehow think you love us more. Oh, what fools we are to think that our religious activity earns your love. 
What a glorious thing to be reminded that your love is unmerited, that your love is unconditional, that it is rest solely upon Jesus Christ and Him alone. Move us, I pray, by your Spirit. Bear fruit in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.